their chapel time, they will come and join us again at the end of the service. Let's give our attention now to the readings from God's Word. Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and the tongue and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O God, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of for sorrow, sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Micah chapter 4. Let me turn there in your Bibles with me if you have one. We're reading verses 1 through 8. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do give thanks to you and we rejoice in all that you have revealed of yourself. And this morning, through the words of the prophet Micah, we ask God that you would give us understanding, that you would lead us into what this great vision of all that you have stored up for your people through your son truly means. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. 
Kenneth Longergan is the writer and director of the new film that's out in theaters this week, Manchester by the Sea. And he gave an interesting interview with Terry Gross of NPR's Fresh Air. You may find it worth listening to if you enjoy films. The movie, without being a spoiler, is about a guilt-ridden and grieving brother who loses his elder brother to congestive heart failure. And Lonergan is attempting to deal with grief and loss and death. He's asking the question, how do you move forward without just moving on? How do you advance in life after suffering without just forgetting about those who you have left behind? Lonergan discusses in the interview that personally he is an atheist, and so he has no room in his worldview for believing in God. But throughout the movie, he uses several sacred songs, songs that have deep resonance, especially in the Christian faith. Perhaps one of his favorite pieces of music, he says, that he uh, goes and attends every year is Handel's Messiah. And the Messiah makes several key appearances in the movie. He was asked about this, especially given his own beliefs. And I want you to consider what he says in answer to that. He says, if only you could believe in that. If you could believe that he will feed his flock. This is one of the lines from the Messiah. And then he says, and the next line, if only you could believe that he will come unto <laughs> or only that you could believe, come unto him all you who are heavy laden, and he shall give you rest. This idea that God is going to take care of you and comfort you and relieve you of your burdens and relieve you of your sorrow is a wonderful, if imaginary, idea. Do you hear what he's saying? If only you could believe that. If there were reason to believe that, that it is a wonderful idea, even though it's imaginary. He can't believe it, it's just fiction. And our passage this morning from Micah chapter 4 is one of those rich Old Testament passages that led to the production of these great promises in the New Testament about God returning and restoring all things through Jesus Christ that God had raised up that mountain in the latter day, and that he was coming to establish peace between all peoples, a comprehensive peace that was going to be universally applied, and that the nations, people from every tribe and tongue, were going to reverse and not disintegrate from one another, but be brought together under the wisdom and the righteousness and the teaching of God. Micah goes on to explain that the weapons of warfare, all the billions of dollars put into the industrial complex, that all of that would then be taken and put into something productive beyond violence, that they would become implements for agriculture. He then moves on in verse 4 to say that every man would sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid that everyone will have their entitlement, their piece of the creation, and to be able to use it for productivity, and no one will take it. Injustice will be removed. This was Micah's picture. And we all can agree that it's wonderful, because at the center of it is this idea of the mountain of the house of the Lord, 
This is just the dwelling of God with his people. It's a metaphor from the ancient Near Eastern world of God dwelling with his people, lifted high and exalted and the nation streaming to it. Lonergan is right. It's wonderful. But Christians have insisted that it's also not just imaginary, that it's not a fiction. And so why exactly is it that we believe this is necessary, that this kind of hope, this kind of vision of a world made right, why do we say it's necessary? If you look in chapter 4 in verses 6 and 7, you find God's answer. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This vision offers two things. It offers grace to the guilty and it offers hope for the weak. You see that Micah speaks of those who God will gather together as a remnant. And he uses two key metaphors. He speaks of assembling the lame and gathering those who have been driven out. Okay? The lame were those who had, been, who had suffered and who were now weakened. And those who were driven out were those who were sent into exile. And this vocabulary that Micah uses echoes Several key places in the Old Testament, but one in particular comes from Genesis chapter 32, and it's the story of Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. He was blessed by God, but he was less than upright and upstanding. And so Jacob was sent away. He was exiled, you can say, from the promised land, and he goes to live with Laban in order to gain a wife. But then on his way back, he meets God, and he wrestles with him. And at the close of that famous chapter, in chapter 32, God then lames Jacob. And this is the same word that Micah uses. That Jacob, the deceiver, who was proud and arrogant and difficult all his life, is then lamed and weakened. And he becomes a humble saint as he returns into the land. And this is what Micah is communicating, that it will be those who are weak, those who have been lamed by God and who have accepted that weakness. It will be those who recognize their guilt, who God will gather together, that God will form this new community. And this is why Micah says it's necessary why it's necessary that we have this vision, because for the weak and for the guilty, which for you and I, these are the truths of our existence, that this is what must happen, and that this is the only hope, that this is good news for us, that God would gather us together, that he would make us part of his flock, that he would install one shepherd over us. This is where hope lies, that God would work on our behalf in this way. In the interview, Lonergan mentions that there are moments of comfort in life. He says, while I can't believe in divine things, there are moments of comfort, and he mentions a few. He says there are pieces of music, the embrace of people. There are other aesthetic experiences as well. But here's the problem. 
This is all the comfort that can be extended to a humanity without a God who promises to renew and restore his broken and busted creation. There can be only these momentary fleeting experiences, the calm that a piece of beautiful music can bring, or the warmth that a hug from a friend can extend to us. But it is ultimately fleeting. There's nothing grounding it any deeper or further. It ends up being a shallow understanding of the human dilemma when we can only solve it with a song or a hug. And Micah is offering us something, and God is extending something far deeper through the prophet to us. It is the answer to all the alienation that exists inside of creation. It is due to the weakness that we carry because of our sins and our guilt that has ostracized us from God and cut us off, alienated from Him. And this God is saying, no, there will be a day in those last days where I will gather those people I will gather those weak ones who have been lamed by my discipline. I will gather those guilty ones who have confessed that they couldn't do it themselves. Friends, this is, this is the good news that God extends to us, that he welcomes the weak and the lame. He welcomes the humble who recognize the wrongs. This is who he's gathering together. But how exactly will it happen if this is why it's necessary, because it's the only way for us to be reconciled to God, how will it exactly happen? In the second half of verse 7 and into verse 8, we read this, And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Zion." There's a great deal of scholarly debate about these verses. What precisely do they mean? And you see this strange phrase in verse 8, and you, O tower of the flock. What in the world is Micah referring to? And the original word behind this refers to a physical location in Jerusalem. There was a tower just south of the temple that David conquered and took for the nation of Israel. And just behind the background of all of these prophecies, when flock is mentioned and a shepherd who is going to come, and we'll find this particularly in next week's passage, that God is referring to the great day of renewal where he raises up the line of David once again. And so he has brought this back into Israel's purview, echoing all of this great tradition of David's family and David's line, and God's promise to David's family that one of his sons would sit upon his throne forever. And how will it be? Because God will renew his reign over all the ends of the earth through a son of David. That was the promise. That was what is being said in all of these grandiose things that God was going to make all things right and end war and give all their part of creation to enjoy and participate in it when he restored the son of David to his rightful rule over all the ends of the earth. Friends, that's how it happens. And in the Christian faith, we celebrate not latter days that are just ahead, but we recognize that we live in that time, that those latter days that Micah refers to have begun in the coming of our Lord Jesus. 
that the latter days don't refer to just a few weeks or months up ahead of God's renewal of everything, that that was all kicked off when our Lord Jesus in his first advent came into the world and he died and he rose again. And we live in eager expectation of his return. But friends, he has done this. He has won the victory for us and he has established God's reign over all the ends of the earth. This is how it happens. Because God sends his son to make possible what we couldn't work out on our own terms and in our own strength. That we can't work out with political policies. That we can't make happen through our money. That with all of our technology and all the things that we know how to do inside of the creation, we can't solve the ills of the creation. We can't manage it. We can't correct it. That it's out of our control. And what God is saying is that he sent his son who can who can make it right, who can establish this comprehensive peace. He can bring the the universe into one accord. He can bring the nations that hate each other to live inside of one house, to be taught from one law. This is what God holds out to us this morning. But we are oftentimes prone to seek to build our utopia, our ideal existence, without reference to sin. This is one of the human conditions. It's perhaps what Kenneth Lonergan also speaks of as well. Nathaniel Hawthorne, in my favorite page of the Scarlet Letter, it's the opening page to the book. He was critiquing Puritan New England. Listen to what he says, though. The founders of a new colony... Whatever utopia of human virtue and happiness they might originally project have invariably recognized it among their earliest practical necessities to allot a virgin portion of the soil to two things, a cemetery and a prison. (laughs) That Hawthorne was recognizing that anyone who sets out in this broken world is going to have to give, in their utopia, space for at least two things. Because there's death, there will need to be a cemetery plot. And because there's injustice and unrighteousness, you must give room for a prison as well. And friends, we are chastened by that, and we are reminded by it day in and day out of our existence. That there is no making of things right, truly and finally. That creation's first form will not reach its final extension until our Lord Jesus comes and establishes that peace. That he alone can do it. That he alone was the one who was ultimately exiled for us. That he was lamed and that he took on our weakness. That he was cast out. That he went down into death. But then because he rises again... Because he was the true and faithful one who did not sin against God. He does all those things on our behalf. And because he is our king, we share in that great victory. And God graciously and mercifully welcomes us back into his house because of Jesus. That's what makes it happen. That's what makes it possible. That's how we get to participate in it. And we can have the hope of that utopia where there will be no cemetery, 
where there will be no prison, where Micah says there will be war no more, that the nations will not learn it, that each will eat from his own vine, the presence of God will dwell with us, that the nations will come to receive wisdom and righteousness and teaching from God, that they'll stream to him. But yes, it's poetic imagination at work here, speaking, giving us a mold for understanding what new creation will look like. And the final thing for us to ask, though, is if that's true, if that Christian vision of things is true, what does it exactly mean for us today? There are a great number of things that we could say. But the prophet Micah and also the prophet Isaiah use it in one very specific way. If you're a student of the Old Testament, you may have noticed that this passage also appears in Isaiah 2. We actually read it at the front of the service. Micah and Isaiah actually lived during uh, complementary times and their ministries overlapped. And most of the scholars that I read this week would say, yes, well, they were working probably out of some common text that the prophets used together. And it even seems that this text was used in the worship of Israel, where something was read to the people and the people would respond. Does that sound familiar? These things go a long way back. But in chapter 4, in verses 1 through 4, this was what was read to the people. The latter days when God returned, when his spirit came back to Israel and God dwelled with his people and the son of David was exalted to rule over the nations. This is what was read. And then in verse 5, there's a shift. And the language changes. And it says, For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And the scholars of this passage would tell us that this was the response of the congregation when this great vision of prophecy about God's plans and purposes for creation were read that the people would then respond by committing to walk in the way of the Lord, that his way will be our way, because what God has done for us, because God has accomplished this, because God will welcome the lame and God will welcome the guilty, and because he alone can make this happen, that we know it's out of our hands that we can't fix the broken and busted parts of creation, that we can't cure sin's curse, but God alone in mercy coming in from the outside alone can do it. And so what is the response that's left to us as this grace of God intrudes upon our lives? The only thing left is to say that we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That this is the liturgical response and that this is the response of our lives to give ourselves to him. And friends, when the offering plate comes by today, we associate offering plates with money. Today you'll have the opportunity to put pledge cards in. But the truly appropriate response would be for you to hoist yourself up into that offering plate and then have Jim Brewer and the ushers hand you to the next person. And they pile up on top of you. And we don't have offering plates big enough. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> but it would be quite cumbersome. But this is the function of the offering in the service. is to dedicate our whole lives to say, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. 
Liturgically, this is what we're doing. Committing ourselves to God in all of our lives, in every facet, because of all that He has done for us. The great things that He has done. That He's extended to us this vision of a feast in Zion that will take place with the nations. And He has given it to us freely through His Son. Friends, that's what's happening here. That's the real story of creation. That's the real story God is inviting you to participate in this Christmas season. It's the real story that he invites you into for your entire life, to get lost and caught up in that. Because this prophetic vision, it captures us. It creates, it constitutes, it calls us into something so much bigger than a piece of music and a hug that it invites us into all of God's purposes for creation, that he will make it right, that he will heal all things, that the nations will not learn war, that their implements of warfare will be turned into agricultural instruments. That's what your God has for you. Let's respond to him. Let's pray. In light of all your goodness, in light of all your mercies, We do pledge and declare that we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Help us, God. We know our weaknesses. We know our guilt and our failures. We know that we're weak and lame. And we ask for the strength of your spirit, that we would come to you for wisdom and teaching, and that you would guide us in the way of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
seated. Friends, our King Jesus is also our great high priest, interceding in the heavens on our